Hi there, this is Carla Owen, Chief Executive of Animal Free Research UK, and this is the Animal Free Labcast. It's a new, upbeat show dedicated to a kinder, modern science that puts humans at the heart of medical research. In each episode, I'll be speaking to someone who is helping to make our vision of a world where human diseases are cured faster without animal suffering an ever closer reality. I'll be asking why animal-free research is so important to them and why it's important to put humans, not animals, at the centre of medical research. We love hearing from our listeners too, so we'll be finding out why animal-free research is important to our supporters and other people who are on the journey with us. Today I'm talking with Professor Lorna Harries, who leads the Animal-Free Research UK Animal Replacement Centre of Excellence at the University of Exeter. That's a bit of a mouthful, so we also call it ARC 2.0. Lorna is interested in ageing and improving our health span and quality of life. She also works on diabetes and on COVID-19. I'll be talking with Lorna about why doing animal-free, human-relevant research is not a second-class option, but the best option. Um, So I'm going to start by asking you to introduce yourself because you've got such a long fancy title that I will not get it right. So please could you introduce yourself? So hi, I'm Lorna Harries. I'm Professor of Molecular Genetics at the University of Exeter Medical School and also Chief Scientific Officer of a company called Sinisca, which has been basically grown out of our, our research. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lorna. Really delighted to have you here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what your research involves? Sure, yes. So, so we're basically interested in how and when your genes get activated and turned on and how that plays into um, ageing and diseases like diabetes. So tell, us a little, tell me a little bit more about your genes getting turned on and off. Don't they just sort of sit there in your body <laughs> the whole time? Like, what, so, so, yeah, so we have about 15,000 genes in our genome. A genome is basically right. like a library of, of mm-hmm. genes. We have about 15,000 genes, but our bodies make about 200,000 different things. And they need to be able to turn the right genes on in the right time in the right place so that basically our bodies function as they, sh- as they should. And my team are really interested in the things that can go wrong with that. So mm. if your cells are not able to roll with the punches, if you like, and, and turn on their genes in the right time in the right place, that is one of the things that brings about diseases like diabetes or dementia. Uh, so are they your two kind of main disease areas of focus? So, so diabetes, certainly, that's where we started. Yeah. I started off a long time ago as, as a researcher in diabetes. I would say we don't actually focus on any one particular disease so much these days. We're really interested in, in the causes of everything. So, so most diseases that you get as you get older, things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they actually track back to one or two causes. And we're looking at those causes because we think that if we address the causes of the disease rather than the symptoms then that's going to be a better way to treat people. Ah, so can you tell us a little bit more about what those causes are? Yeah, so, so it's basically sort of a set of housekeeping mechanisms that your cells have to keep themselves healthy. So it's things like, um, you know, the, the, the cellular bin men that take out the, the, the rubbish <laughs> in your cells. And it's things like those on-off switches for turning genes on in the right time in the right place. It's things like... Um, 
the the way your cells handle how they how they manufacture and use energy it's that sort of thing so these are really fundamental parts of biology but when they go wrong that's when the cells start to become unhappy and when the cells start to become unhappy that's when we get disease so can you tell me about when you first got started in human relevant research and and animal free research like is there a day or a moment or <laughs> like take us back to that kind of time when, so, when you realized so actually, that was the what best I would way. say there wasn't a day it's been a very gradual and incremental thing I mean it wasn't such a stretch for, for my team actually Carla because we've always been primarily human relevant research so we, we we deal with cells those cells tend to be from people we, we work with with human cells we work with human populations. We work with computational models. I mean, there was some animal components in initially because that's how people have always done it. So mm. really, I think that the crunch point for us was when we, when we started to realise that the results that we were getting with our human-relevant models were so much better than those that we were getting using other, other techniques. Um, and particularly now we're kind of venturing into drug development. It's, I, I was really shocked to find out how many new drugs actually make it into clinic. And it's about one in 5,000. And I think that's a Goodness. lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money that could be better used. That's quite some failure rate. It, it is, yeah. You wouldn't put up with that in any other walk of life, would you? You really wouldn't. No, no. Um, so is, is the reason for that because many researchers are using animals and their, and their genes function differently to humans? That's certainly part of it. So for the things that we look at, um, the processes that determine what your genes make really don't translate well across species. So only about 30% of the things that happen in, in humans actually happen in mice at the level that we're looking at. So obviously, if you've, if you've worked up a drug in an animal model and you're looking for outcome measures or you're looking at, you know, you're looking at your target, the things that you're actually looking to hit with your medicine... Um, if they're not there, it's not going to work. Thirty percent—that's quite—that's quite a shocking figure. I, I didn't realise it was that. Yeah, for, uh, for, for what we're doing, so it's that kind yeah. of um, the, the thing that that my team are really interested in is that kind of mix and match. Um, each of your genes can make more than one thing, and it's what gets made in response to any given stimulus or at any given time. And animals do it differently. So something that gets made in a human cell in response to, for example, heat, um, you might get something similar made in an animal to do the same job, but it's not the same as that we would make as a person. So if you're, if you're looking to target human things, then actually it's, it's really the best thing to do to be targeting human genes. One of the um, pieces of research that I'm really proud that we funded and uh, that I come back a lot to is the diabetes research that you've done. And I think that's a really great example of that. Could you could you maybe tell us a, a little bit about that? Absolutely. I'm really proud of that too, actually, for what it's worth. So, hmm. yeah, this is about um, when people have diabetes, we know that their beta cells, those are the cells in the pancreas that make insulin, we know that they disappear or they start to disappear. And the animal studies had by and large shown that this was because they die. Mm. We found that they don't, well, some of them die, but some of them don't. Some of them, are, some of them are removed because they turn into other types of cells. So they're still there. They're just not making insulin anymore. Now, there have been some people who've looked at this in, in animal models, in mice particularly, and they do change into different types of cells sometimes, but it's different cells. So when we started looking at this in our human cell model, which we'd 
we basically changed everything about the culture, everything about how we grew those cells. So we were using no animal components whatsoever. We noticed that those cells were not dying and they weren't turning into the sorts of cells that mice turn them into. They were turning into a completely different sort of cell that makes a completely different hormone. And we would not have seen that in any other system. Goodness. I mean, that's staggering, isn't it? If you think about all of the, you know, money and the animals that have been used in diabetes research. Absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, if you're going to put something right, if you're going to if you're going to intervene and and turn things back to how they should be, you need to know exactly where where to prod. And this is one of the reasons I think why there's been such a problem with the the translation of things from animal models through into in, actually into the clinic because sometimes those points at which you need to prod are different. Mm. So what are the implications of that for your research oh, and gosh. what happens next? <laughs> Very exciting. So, so basically, we, we identified a population of cells that had changed their identity. They'd become a different sort of cells. Um, and then we isolated those and we, we basically read the entire collection of RNA messages out of them. We identified a gene that was responsible for it. Now we know what that gene is. We can go in there and we can, we, we can basically fine-tune where that gene is switched on, how it's switched on, and what forms of messages it makes to stop the cells changing. So potentially, and I don't want to overclaim Lorna, <laughs> but potentially that could be a game-changer for people living with diabetes. It, it could. We've got a lot of work to do, Carla. You and I both of know course. that. We've got a lot to do, <laughs> but we have to start somewhere. And until you know what you're looking for, then, then you can't do anything. So this is the, the initial steps, I'm hoping, if everything pans out as it should be, these are the initial steps towards something that might in the future be very useful. So I can't imagine that it's been a particularly easy journey for you being a champion of human relevant research. What have some of the challenges been? Oh gosh, that there have been so many challenges. I think coming from a starting point where actually the use of animals is routine and is regarded as gold standard, Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges we've had is actually getting people to understand that what we're doing is not a kind of a second class option. It's actually the best option. That has been one. In terms of the practicalities of it, um, human cells in culture are temperamental. And the sorts of cells that we were working on for our diabetes project are extra temperamental. In fact, it took us 18 months to get them even happy in growing in vitro before we could even start to do anything with them. So there were times when I was starting to despair, are we actually ever going to get these cultures in a condition we can use them? But we hung in there and and we got there, but it it definitely wasn't easy. And was it worth it? It was absolutely worth it. So what we found is when we started to, um, when we changed everything so they were completely in completely humanised conditions, not only did they respond as well as the cells which were in the animal media, they responded about four times better. Okay, so tell us about how you actually conduct human-relevant research. What does it actually involve? So again, that's going to depend on, on what you're doing, but certainly for the cells... I mean, cells are, the cells that we use are a line that we, we got from a collaborator. They're human cells. They have come from um, a human I, originally and have been changed so that they'll grow in culture. 
but they're not, they're not easy cells to grow. So it's not a question of just putting them in a test tube and letting them get on with it. It's not that easy. They, won't, they just won't do anything if you do that. So there's all sorts of additives. You have to put in a whole cocktail of different um, proteins in with them to get them to grow. And they also like to grow on a surface. And that surface can't just be plastic. It needs to have kind of um, almost like a layer of jelly on the bottom of it. And conventionally, both those proteins and the layer of jelly will have come from an animal-derived source. So even if you're using a completely human cell line, actually, a lot of tissue culture, unless you change it, does have a lot of animal components in it. So, for example, you need to put additives in with the cells so that it'll grow. Quite often, people in in tissue culture will use um, serum that's come from calves. So... And that's because it's got a lot of, you know, it's got everything in it that those cells need to grow. So when we're, when we're actually what we would call humanizing these cells, although the cells are human to start with, we're having to swap out every single animal reagent, any, every single chemical, every single protein that's of an animal origin in our culture media for a human equivalent or a synthetic equivalent and hoping the cells will behave as well. And that's why it takes so long, because it can be really hit and miss. Things that you think shouldn't make a huge difference actually do make an enormous difference to the cells. Things that you think are going to be really easy on paper, actually, when you come to do it in real life, it's not so easy. So it was a long and tedious process. As I said, it took us about 18 months to do it. But that's Mm. the basic way that we would go about doing that. So it's not that you've got people with diabetes knocking on your laboratory door and saying, oh, I'd like to be a, a, a donor. <laughs> well, we do, actually, but not, not, for, not for bits of pancreas. Um, they're typically happy to give us blood samples, things that are from the inside of them, slightly less um, enthusiastic about, which I can understand. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> So what about um, the ageing side of your research? I mean, obviously, there are links between diabetes and ageing, but I think you have a broader interest in ageing. We do. And I I think, like I said, it's about dealing with the causes of disease and not just the consequences of those processes. Because we can, the way it's looked at at the moment, all of those individual common diseases that we're all so familiar with, we're putting a sticking plaster over the symptoms. What we're trying to do is to understand why they're happening, because they do happen in clusters. Quite often you find people with diabetes might also come have, have dementia down the line. Mm. You very rarely find in an old person that there's just one thing wrong with them. Quite often they'll have you know, a lot of things wrong with them. And we think that dealing with those underlying things which are going wrong up front will give us a much better handle on it. Well, maybe you could tell us about Laura's work at the ARC. So, so yeah, so there, there are lots of ways that we can do this. One of the ways that we're doing it within the ARC, and Laura, who's our um, inaugural PhD student, who's, who's working on that, she's looking at finding drugs which are out there already in the clinic, new jobs for those drugs. So to find out which ones of those drugs actually will interface with these common mechanisms and change how those cells are behaving. And what we're doing is we're looking for chemicals these are drugs that are already out there that can actually effectively turn back the aging clock in cells, which will bear, bear fruit down the line as new treatments for disease. So we're working with you to form the Animal Replacement Centre of Excellence, the ARC, as we call it, um, where we're funding uh, Laura Bramwell's PhD. And she's looking at ageing and the effects of ageing. And so you were just telling us about Laura and some of her work. So what is she aiming to achieve? So you actually have two kind of um, things which happen as you age. You have your lifespan, which is how long you live, and you have Mm -hmm. your health span, which is what proportion of your life that you live without problems. 
So we don't want a whole generation of people living into their 150s who are really ill. We really don't. What we want is a generation of people maybe living to their 90s who actually are living healthy in a healthy way and independently and having a good quality of life until late life. That's what we're looking to do. We might have some small benefits for lifespan, but we're certainly not talking about, you know, the 200-year-old human or anything like that. That's not what we're focused on. <laughs> That's good. So we're looking at quality of life, we not are. quantity. Yeah. So how far down that road are we, Lorna? Oh, we're on our baby steps. So these mechanisms, these ways that we can actually attenuate how old cells behave, we can influence how old cells behave, these have only been known about for about six or seven years. So this is really, really new biology. We're right at the beginning. Mm. But I will say there's, there's not just us, there's a, a bunch of other people who are all kind of looking at the same sorts of things and the momentum is increasing. So I'm hoping that within the lifespan of my scientific career, we will start to see some, some advances. And you were talking about Laura's work and that she's looking at um, drugs or products that already exist and, and maybe looking for new things that they can do. So is that to help slow down the ageing process? Yes. So, so it's to again to deal with this question of health span so quite often the genes that that look after whether or not you live a long time are the same genes that look after whether or not you age well so we're looking we're we're taking an unbiased look a lot of drugs that are out there actually do a lot more things than than people think so and quite often a lot of the drugs they don't actually quite know how they work so it makes sense to us to to look to see for new jobs for these drugs because obviously they're out there their safety profiles are really well understood there's often millions of people worldwide who will have been taking them so we know how they behave in people in real life so we're looking to use that information to identify those drugs from within those that collection of drugs might be useful for our purposes. You might not want to answer this, but are there any early indications? <laughs> there are lots of early indications, but I'm not happy to tell you about them just yet because we've still got work to do. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> That's the scientist in me, Carla, sorry. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, we don't want everyone rushing out and drinking more red wine or... Eat loads of chocolate or something. I think, I think, yeah, this is it. It's like uh, you rush out and you drink lots of red wine and eat lots of chocolate. You, you, you might, uh, it might just seem like you're living longer, right? <laughs> Certainly you might be having a happier time. <laughs> so you're doing some really groundbreaking research, Lorna, and we're, we're so proud to be funding you. Where does your research sort of fit in the world of, of medical research? Sure. So it's always been my number one rule that anything we do has got to be done for the right reasons. And I've always been driven by the science. So Mm. I think, but according to that yardstick, our research will sit equally well with any other research that's going out there, actually. I think also we we probably have a, a benefit because we are human relevant, which means hopefully we should be able to translate our findings quicker and easier to the clinic than maybe some other people will. And so getting to the clinic, is that is that an ambition? Absolutely. I don't see the point in, you know, I don't see the point in doing something that's just going to end up as a piece of knowledge that's of interest to other scientists like me. I want to see our research, you know, get out into the world and actually do some good. So animal free, human relevant research from laboratory bench through to patient bedside. Absolutely. Bench to that's bedside. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely the dream. So it can't always have been easy going down an animal-free, human-relevant pathway. Were there ever times when you thought, this just can't (laughs) be done? (laughs) So nothing worthwhile is ever easy. 
Um, I was always taught that if something is really, really easy, then it's probably not worth, you know, it's, it's probably not that groundbreaking. If it's really, really easy, someone else has probably done it. So sure, there have been challenges along the road. There have been times when I kind of looked at what we're doing and thought, yeah, why on earth are we doing it this way? But then I remember that we're doing it this way because actually we'll get better results at the end of it. And hopefully, you know, it'll all come through and it'll produce something useful that we're not having to translate from one system to another. We're not having to infer what's going to happen in, in, in people from what's happening in, in model species. Um, you know, that, that's, always been my, that's always been my driver. And actually, as a scientist, obstacles are no... Um, that's something we, can, we encounter all the time, be you doing animal-free research or any other kind of research, actually. When you're right out there at the, at the limits of what is known, it is going to be difficult. And that's something that actually as scientists we learn to do is to kind of push through the pain and keep going, even when it, you know, the rest of your, the world and, and your own senses are screaming at you, this is really stupid and you should stop. <laughs> so what's currently keeping you up at night? What are the senseless, stupid things that oh, you're worried gosh. about? Oh, all sorts. So, so where to start? You know, what, there's so much with, with the ageing stuff that we're doing, dealing with the fundamental nuts and bolts of ageing biology. It's where do we go with that? What do we go for first? Do we, do we go for some of the big diseases that everybody's going for? Or do we go for things that we think that we can have an effect on quickly and easily, which is actually what we've chosen to do, because I think everybody's working on dementia and we will get there and we will go there. But there's a reason, I think, why we're not seeing a new drug for dementia tomorrow. I think it's inherently more challenging. So we're looking at things that we can start to have some effect sooner. But yeah, oh gosh, I mean, I think my, my, my big problem is, is kind of figuring out what's the best and most exciting science that we can do and what's the best and most exciting science that we can do in a human relevant way that we can get that message out there because that's how we're going to convince the rest of the scientific community and government and all of those people is, is by showing that we can get really good data that's up there with any other data that's out there in the world and do it using human relevant methods. So you've said you're not going into dementia for, for really good reasons. So it's diabetes and ageing. What else are you, you focusing on in your lab? So the other big thing we're looking at at the moment, very topical, is obviously, is obviously COVID. Um, so there's a lot of information coming out now that actually COVID is a disease of accelerated ageing. So the consequences of having that infection actually does age you. There's been some estimates by about 10 years. So we Goodness. are looking at the moment as to, firstly, can we measure how long people have got active COVID in their system? Because obviously with long COVID, you know, you have your initial infection, which might be quite, um, quite mild. But then we're seeing this about somewhere between six and 10% of people who have got, you know, long, longer term and ongoing issues. And we have a theory that that might be because there's some reservoir somewhere in the body of infectious virus. So one of the, uh, the things that we've done is another, another one of my students, who's also AFR funded, is uh, Merlin, and he's marvellous. And he's, yep. um, he worked up an assay that can actually tell you not just if someone has got virus, but whether someone has infectious virus. And we, we've done a lot of work with that. So what he's doing now is to kind of, he's sitting at the kind of the crossroads of the COVID work and the ageing work. So he's mm. working at some human relevant models whereby we take human cells and we challenge them with bits of COVID, not entire COVID because we don't want live virus in the lab, but we can challenge no. the cells with bits of COVID and then to see whether or not we can, we can change how they respond by the use of some of the drugs that Laura's working with. That's fascinating. So potentially looking at how you might be able to reverse the impact of COVID? 
So, so looking at, yeah, whether or not there's something that we can, we can do for people with long COVID, whether there's something that we can, we can do to support people so that they don't have problems with an aging immune system. So that's fascinating and, and all without using animals again. So is there, like, you've obviously, you've told us about the scientific reason for animal free and human relevant research is there a personal motivation for you as well Lorna? Oh of course I mean I am an animal lover I have I have two wonderful pet dogs Um, (laughs) and I just think that you know the distinction between what's a human and what's not a human it's 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 an arbitrary line isn't it so anyone that's got Mm. pets will tell you that those pets they love you they feel they have emotions and I think for, for me you know, obviously it has to be counted by, by by being scientifically valid. But if I have an option where I don't have to do that, then that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. Well, Lorna, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, very best of luck with your research. It's so important. Uh, and I'd just like to thank you and all of your, um, your the people who contribute to your, to your purse really very much for, for funding us because it wouldn't have been possible without you. There are still so many challenges for researchers like Lorna and her team who are using animal-free approaches, but her determination to find treatments for patients drives her conviction that human-relevant research is the best option. And her exciting science is showing decision-makers just that. In the next episode, I'll be discussing what heart disease expert Professor Chris Denning calls modern-day alchemy. So we'll hear all about that next time in the Animal Free Labcast, the show dedicated to a kinder modern science that puts humans at the heart of medical research. Again, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, if you've been inspired, the best way that you can help is by making a donation at animalfreeresearchuk.org. Of course, if that's not something that is possible for you right now, there are loads of other ways that you can get involved on the website. And of course, please do share this episode far and wide if you've enjoyed it. From me, Carla Owen, thanks so much for listening.